having a quantitative model, you would be able to see that your inhibition potency reduces. And in other words, you're moving towards a compound which will eventually, hopefully, become safe in this respect. I'm sure all our listeners know this already, but creating safe medicines is hard work. Scientists need to thoroughly test drug candidates to reduce the risk of negative side effects. And the earlier on they know this information, the more time and resources they can spend on better candidates. Luckily, there are predictive tools that can help identify toxicity issues before even making the molecule. This helps protect patients while saving time and money. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Sarah. We're the hosts of The Analytical Wavelength, a podcast about chemistry and chemical data brought to you by ACD Labs. Our colleagues, Kirill Levski, Rumigius Digipetis, and Andreas Sazona, recently published a paper in the Journal of Computer-Aided Molecular Design on the subject of HERC inhibition, which is critical for predicting cardiotoxicity. We had a chance to talk with Andreas and Kirill about the paper and have them explain to us how these models are built using unusual data sets. This was a fascinating conversation covering everything from machine learning to go-go dancing. We hope you all enjoy. Hello, Andreas and Kirill. How are you two doing today? I'm fine. Yeah. Yeah. Hello, Jesse. We're actually good. Pretty good. (laughs) Good, good. Okay, so we want to start off, of course, with our favorite opening question. What is your favorite chemical? Let's start with uh, Andreas. Okay, so uh, that's that's an interesting question, especially for a chemist, because, you know, you encounter a lot of chemicals uh, in your life. But, uh, you know, in the summer, I always enjoy having a good swim, like in, in a river, lake, ocean, or sea, or whatever. And in the winter, I actually hardly can live without downhill skiing, and all of that involves water in one form or another. What an what a amazing molecule can have so many different uses. Yeah, absolutely. And how about you, Karel? I will take this question literally. And uh, since I am a biochemist, so I will say that my favorite molecule is serotonin. Because this is the actual, like, so-called hormone of happiness. So this is literally what makes me and other people happy. I like that answer. So diving into our topic of the day, can you explain to us what is HERG inhibition and why is it important? So to start this discussion, probably the first thing we must explain is what is actually HERG itself. So uh, the name HERC stands for a gene that encodes a part of the potassium ion channel protein. And that protein is one of the important components in regulating the proper heart rhythm. And uh, the name of HERC itself actually has quite an interesting background behind it. The first homologue of this protein was first identified in drosophila flies. And mutant drosophila flies were shown to exhibit quite a strange behavior under the exposure of ether. They started shaking their legs in a way reminiscent of movements of go-go dancers. 
<laughs> and here, the biologists actually showed that they also have a sense of humor, and that gene was called etherogo-go gene. <laughs> and now, in a much more complex organism, in our human organism, this story still persists as this acronym HERC expands to human etherogo-go related gene. But now back to more serious stuff. This ion channel can be blocked as a side effect of drug action. And uh, since it is involved in maintaining heart rhythm, so this side effect can manifest as a specific type of arrhythmia, the so-called QT interval prolongation. And it is unfortunately a life-threatening condition. And due to this side effect, a number of drugs have been even withdrawn from the market. And one of the classical examples is an anti-allergic drug called terfenadine. So imagine that you have an allergy, you try to take an antihistamine pill, and you can actually die from the side effect. So obviously that's not good. And fortunately, in that particular case, the story was resolved in quite a favorable manner. Terfenadine was replaced by its metabolite which was also active as a drug. But nowadays, obviously, all new drug candidates must be tested for herc inhibition in order to avoid such serious consequences. Yeah, that sounds like a very serious consequence. So that's why I imagine these predictors for herc inhibition are so important. So why use a herc inhibition prediction model based on physiochemical parameters as opposed to just based on structure? This is uh, one of those dilemmas because when we are saying models based on physicochemical parameters as opposed to structure, we usually mean mechanistic models versus empirical models, the latter being based exclusively on structural information and various descriptors derived from it. Both of these uh, classes of models, they have their own pros and cons. And since we're now speaking about what is the benefit of using the model based on the, on the physical chemical parameters. So these types of uh, models, otherwise called mechanistic models, so they usually possess a much wider applicability domain. In other words, the model is not that much fitting to the initial training set and you are able to apply the model later on on a wider structural variety of, of chemicals. And these models, for, for the same reasons, these kinds of mechanistic models, they show a better, better result in what is called a temporal validation. In other words, the model's performance over time. Because as, as we have shown, among other things in our publication, the, the focus areas of the drug discovery they, they drift with time. So in other words, there are classes of compounds going in and off what you could call a hype, let's say. And so over time, the chemical compounds with which uh, the companies are dealing with, they change. And if, if you have a, an empirical model based on the structure, it means that in order for it to keep up with, with the time, you have to keep it constantly retraining using new data. The mechanistic models are the ones based on physical chemical parameters, so they don't suffer from, from those drawbacks. And another thing probably worth mentioning is these mechanistic models, they usually express one property, in our case, Herg inhibition, as a function dependent on other properties which are measurable 
but simpler. So in our case, let's say PKA or LOCP. In this way, mechanistic models sometimes can be seen as a method to exchange a more complex and more costly measurement with a simpler one and a cheaper one. So in, in other words, you can do what is called in-combo modeling when instead of doing a prediction entirely within the software, you just take the model, which is in an equation, and you actually measure PKA and log P values, which are much easier to measure compared to there. And then you substitute measured values into that equation, and that way arrive at a more reliable, more accurate evaluation of her. Yeah, those are certainly some compelling arguments for the mechanistic model. But going forward from that, what are the reasons why is it useful to have a quantitative model for HERG inhibition prediction? This one is, is probably even more obvious. It depends on the context. And of course, if we are talking about a thing like safety assessment of impurities in the formulation, which happens in the late stage development, and you're obviously just interested whether the compound is uh, genotoxic or not genotoxic, or in, in other ways has any, any other safety you know, issues with it. So then it is enough just to know a yes or no answer. But if we're talking about a earlier stage of development, especially like lead optimization, so you know, having just an answer yes and no is, of course, a minimum that you would like to have, but it's uh, much more beneficial to be able to actually know if you have a herd liability in your candidate compound, how far is it actually from dealing with, with this issue? So in other words, how potent of an inhibitor that is, and so that you could rank your compounds ranging from, you know, strong inhibitors to weaker inhibitors. And then, of course, uh, when you do the, an optimization, again, it's usually performed in a stepwise manner. So using just yes and no uh, predictions, it would be often impossible to see the evolution of your, of your optimization. So in other words, your compound becomes a weaker inhibitor, but a qualitative model will still uh, say that it's just an inhibitor. Whereas having a quantitative model, you would be able to see that your inhibition potency reduces. And in other words, you're moving towards a compound which will eventually, hopefully, become safe in this respect. And one more thing that I can add to Andrew's answer is that uh, even when you're dealing with a yes or no answer, in this case, the underlying characteristic is still quantitative. So it's like half inhibitory concentration or inhibition constant. And when you're dealing with this kind of data, you still need to pick a threshold between inhibitors and non-inhibitors. And if we provide only such kind of model that gives either a yes-no answer or a probability, we are tied to that threshold. And if some company works uh, with a different kind of threshold, uh, there arises some kind of incompatibility between their data and our predictions. And if we offer a quantitative model, it automatically solves this problem. Uh, any company is free to choose the threshold they work with. 
I can imagine it'll be frustrating for the users to getting different answers from different pieces of software and not really understanding like what is happening or like what these differences are. It's probably better to just let them you know, be able to make the judgments for themselves. But this goes into some of the, the challenges of working with this you know, censored or non-quantitative data. Uh, what do you do in order to work with this data? Well, again, probably the first thing we need to explain here is what actually is the censored data. So uh, when we are working with a quantitative characteristic, such as a half-inhibitory constant, in order to determine this characteristic in a more or less precise way, the researchers need to perform an entire series of experiments uh, to determine the full concentration activity curve. So that means that they need to test their compounds at a series of different concentrations. But what happens in practice is that when the compound is really not a potent HERC inhibitor, it's really safe in this regard. So, for example, people test that at concentration of 30 micromoles, it uh, gives only 5% inhibition. So uh, the compound is clearly safe by all reasonable margin. And in this kind of situation, the researchers are not interested in determining the full curve. For their purposes, this kind of data is already enough. But for us, it's like a semi-quantitative data point. We know for sure that the inhibitory constant is larger than 30 micromoles, but we don't know by how much. So this is exactly the kind of data point that is called a sensor. Another situation which happens, I would say, quite rarely, but it still occurs sometimes, when it is a very potent inhibitor. And again, the researchers already know for sure from one data point that this compound basically has to be thrown away. And they determine that, for example, IC50 is less than 2 microns. For them, it's enough. For us, it is, again, a sensor data point. In this situation, a left sensor data point. In the first case, right sensor when we try to make a quantitative prediction, we can't just use these data as if they were 30 and 2. Because, you know, if our model predicts, for example, for the first compound, that it is 50 or 60, it's kind of good prediction in both cases. And we don't know which one is closer to truth. So this, this poses kind of a problem in statistical analysis. And so what did you do in this work to overcome the challenge of having non-quantitative data? Well, speaking about the data itself, obviously there is nothing we can do because the data is what it is. But what we can do, we can try to, to research what kind of statistical analysis methods are available for dealing with this kind of data. And in fact, this concept of sensor data was explored already in the mid 20th century. But back at those times, the method that was offered, a sensor regression, it was basically an analog of a simple linear regression that obviously can work well when you try to explore a relationship between your target endpoint and very few parameters with linear dependencies. But in our case, with 
more complex uh, descriptors and non-linearities in the dependencies, it, it, it won't work. We typically work with more modern methods. And with HERC, the previous iteration of our physical chemical model was based on gradient boosting methodology. And it turned out that these days, there are actually methods that allow to combine an advanced machine learning technique, such as gradient boosting, with fitting for sensor to regression objectives. It's my impression that actually this kind of research became a bit more popular during COVID pandemic, because typically this kind of data are involved in survival analysis. And with COVID, when there is a, some kind of survival data, obviously this often is the method of choice. And we found a combination that works for our use case. Therefore, we have developed a gradient boosting model fitted to an objective function used in survival analysis. Excellent. If people want to learn more about that, they can, of course, uh, check out the, the paper will be linked into the show notes. But before I let you guys go on this note about machine learning, I actually had a question for you in terms of what you think the future is for machine learning and AI in the next couple of years in chemistry. Specifically, it's a very hot topic, I think, as everybody knows, and I'd be interested to hear what you two think is going to be happening next or what you're most excited about. Definitely. A tough question. It is always tough to be a prophet, so I'll probably phrase my answer in, in, in a bit more general way, not like trying to predict what particular results can we expect from the application from this, but, but like a general perspective, what I could call like a current state of all these methodologies. And undoubtedly, machine learning and artificial intelligence are really capable techniques. It's just the challenge in my opinion, is actually adequately understanding their capabilities because like by definition, any statistical method, including uh, machine learning and even like more advanced methods like uh, artificial intelligence, by definition, they do what they are told to do. But you have to always think about uh, whether you're asking the right questions. Some people, this this is not entirely my thought, but there are quite a lot of people that see these methodologies in, in the context of drug discovery as a sort of solution looking, still looking for a problem that it can allegedly solve. Because to be honest, I do not think that in the current state of research, even though we know that it is, it is already capable to do a lot of things that, that people can notice even in, in their daily lives, I don't think it, it can act as a silver bullet, so-called, you know, an universal solution to all the problems. And then all the people that, uh, that are trying to use artificial intelligence in such a way that just throwing all the information we have at, at, this, at this method and then just hope that it will figure something, something reasonable out. So I believe they are in for a letdown. Uh, there is one anecdotal story i was i was watching a tedx presentation a number of years ago already that uh, presented a research where uh, the experimenters actually tried to to build an artificial intelligence model that provided with the spare parts for a robot would learn to assemble 
a robot out of those spare parts that then could walk or just could travel uh, from point A to point B. And then again, the presenter of that talk did not uh, did not talk about specifically how they trained that model. But when they did that, so the, the eventual output of the model was that it stacked all the spare parts of the robot into a very tall tower standing on point A and fell it over. And like the top parts fell, <laughs> fell far enough to cover the distance to point B and the model considered like the, the problem to be solved. And it's probably like, you know, I've corrected even myself right now telling this story when I said like from walk to, to travel. It's like, you know, probably if you would have put uh, a walk in the definition of a solution, so that uh, would not be a reasonable solution, no longer like falling over this, this tower. So in other words, you have to be really careful. You have to understand that current AI is not a all-knowing uh, magical box that will solve all of your problems. So you have to be like really, really careful and really specific about how you define those problems. And in that, trying to summarize, undoubtedly, the impact of artificial intelligence will rise, but it will come, in my opinion, from like really targeted research on, on some specific areas, rather than trying to build sort of global models that uh, you put a big database and get a good drug out of it. Well, if that means that it's you know particularly important to have experts like the two of you to help guide that that research and that development. So we're so happy to have you on the podcast to share some of that with the audience. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. Thank you both. Yeah, absolutely. You're welcome. You're welcome. I think what you said at the end is right. With so much happening in the world of chemistry, AI, and medicine, expertise is more important than ever. Absolutely. If folks want to learn more about this subject, be sure to check out the show notes where we have links to the paper that we discussed. That's all for today. Thanks as always for spending time with us. And don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app. The Analytical Wavelength is brought to you by ACD Labs. We create software to help scientists make the most of their analytical data by predicting molecular properties and by organizing and analyzing their experimental results. To learn more, please visit us at www.acdlabs.com.